Please open your Bibles now to Psalm chapter 5. <coughs> In the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 570. Psalm 5, we'll be looking just at verses 8 and 9 this morning as we open the Word of God together. But before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the means of grace that He has appointed for the good of His church. O Father in heaven, we come before you once again and we give you thanks, O Lord, for your holy word. For you have given your word to your church for all ages until Christ returns. We thank you that you have appointed a means by which this word is to go forth, by which this word is to be proclaimed unto the people. You have directed that it be read, that it be preached, and it be taught to the church. And so this morning we come, O Lord, not before a means that we have created or devised on our own, nor a means that we trust in ourselves, but Father, we come before a means that you have appointed We seek to worship you in the way that you have directed. And therefore we come with hope, with confidence, with encouragement. Because we come with this promise in hand, O Lord. You have said that by this means and in this way, you would meet with us. You would speak to us and you would bless us. And so we humble ourselves before the preaching of your word this morning. And we pray that it may be unto us what you have appointed it to be the means of grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Beginning at verse 8, this is the word of God. David continues in his prayer. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Amen. Thus saith the Lord. There's probably nothing more practical in the Christian life than the need for guidance. I didn't take the time to try to search on Google or the Library of Congress or any other way, but I can't imagine the hundreds and probably thousands of books that have been written for Christians to find guidance. How do I find the will of God for my life? What would God have me do? What is the right path? We are all faced with the need for guidance. Some of the questions that we often hear among Christians are how do I discover that will? What does God want me to do in a particular situation? And of these good choices, which should I choose? And of course, there are a thousand very particular questions that we face. Should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Should I go to this college? Should I get married? Should it be this person? Should I make this purchase? Life is filled with questions especially for our teenagers and young adults seeking to find their way in life, indeed seeking marriage, considering college, a career, how to provide for and raise a family. What is one's calling and vocation in life? What would God have me do? 
as our children go forth, they begin to navigate relationships, choose career paths, and wrestle with living out the faith with which they have been raised because mom and dad are not always there anymore. And they need to own that faith for themselves. And these questions arise by the dozens. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of questions. Because for one, we're not God. God alone is all-wise and all-knowing, so God has no questions. And being the creatures that we are, there are at least three reasons why we stand in need of constant guidance. First of all, because God created us to depend upon Him. He created us to seek His guidance. We were not created to be independent or self-sufficient. We were never meant to live without God, which is why practical atheism is not freedom, it's self-destruction. Secondly, we need God's guidance because we've made a lot of bad decisions in life. We've made a lot of bad decisions against what we knew to be the right way, and it didn't turn out so well. If we're honest, our track record is terrible. We have made bad decisions, and we will make more. And thirdly, we need God's guidance because we have the tendency to be persuaded and to be led astray by the world's ungodly counsel. The world's ungodly counsel often sounds so good, right, wise, prudent, obvious, even as we heard in Sunday school this morning how prone God's people were and are in Scripture and still are to imitate the worship of other nations, the worship of other religions, to worship God that way. We are so prone to follow the world. Our own hearts are budding with worldliness, which means we're blind if we don't see our need for God's guidance, and we're fools if we don't actually seek it. We're not going to do well on our own. None of us ever has. None of us ever will. So if we want to live lives pleasing to God and we want to avoid the snares of ungodly counsel, then we need to ask the Lord that He would lead us. And in particular, that He would lead us in right paths. That He would surround us with good counselors. That He would speak the truth of His Word directly into our lives and that He would make His way straight before our feet. And that's just what David does here in verses 8. And 9, particularly, of course, verse 8. So I want us to look at these two verses together this morning under three points. What's David's request? Why does he ask it? And what is his rationale behind it? And I think in these three things, we'll find some helpful guidance this morning. And on top of that, I hope to give you some really practical counsel on being led by God in this life. First of all, look at verse 8. Look at David's request. He actually asked for two things. First of all, he asks that God would lead him in his righteousness. Now, you know the Old Testament. Ever since God led Israel through the wilderness by a cloud by day and a fire by night, God had shown himself to be the God who goes before his people and leads his people to a place of safety and promised provision, a place he prepared for them. Even when he brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground and through a 40-year journey in the desert on his daily provisions, he had shown himself repeatedly to be the God who makes a way where there is no way and a God to whom impossibilities are as nothing. He had shown himself to be a God who leads his people like a tender, compassionate shepherd. 
Isaiah 40, verse 11, we are told, He will lead His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Never, ever has God abandoned His people. Never had the people of God just cause to say, Where is our God? That may have been the accusation of the nations against God's people. Where is your God? But always did they know our God is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. And yet our God is not absent from His church. He leads us like a shepherd. The Lord had proven His faithfulness to lead and to guide His people over all the ages prior to David. And this gave David ground to stand upon, so to speak, in asking that this same God would now lead him. The God who leads His people, would He lead him? And so what David's asking is that the Lord would be faithful to lead him in righteous paths. Let the ungodly go their own way. David wants to be led by God. Because that's the only right way, isn't it? But he also asked for a second thing. He asked not only to be led in the right paths, but he asked that God would make his way straight before him. And here he desires either that God would make his way straight so he can find it, or that God would make his way level so that he can walk more easily in it. Because you see, sometimes we're unsure which way to go. We're unsure of the best thing to do, and we need God to lay it out straight in front of us so that we don't make a misstep. We need God to illuminate his path before us. And Psalm 119 notes this, doesn't it? His word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The very next step he illuminates for me. That's the encouragement and the promise. And this is what David is praying. Make it straight before me so I see not just the end and where I'm going, but even directly how to get there. The very next step. Sometimes we're surrounded by what we think are impossibilities and we can't see how in the world God could deliver us, how God could provide for us. And we need him to increase our faith. We need him to open our eyes to see things as he sees them lest we fall into unbelief and despair of his help. Because, well, what can God do in this situation? There's no way out. Paul, you remember, says there's always a way out. There's always a way. God leads his people through the darkness. Sometimes, of course, also we know the way God would have us to go. We know what God tells us to do. But there are so many things in the way of our walk that we can't even take the first step. And so we need God to level the path. We need God to remove the obstacles. There are things in the way and only God can take them out of the way. David is praying for these kinds of things. Make your way straight before me. David is praying that like a father would clear his path for a child to walk in, that God would clear the path right before him. So this is David's request. But let's ask a second question then. Why did David pray for the Lord's guidance? What's his reasons here? Well, look at verse 8. David says, because of my enemies. We know the context here. Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5. These all seem to go together. David's prayer was motivated here, we see, by a desire that his enemies not find an occasion against him or against God. You see, every Christian, as you well know, I don't need to tell you this, but every Christian is being watched by the world. They watch us with an eagle eye, hoping to see us commit some great folly that will justify their atheism, their irreligious life, their idolatry, 
justify them in their sin because Christians are no better, obviously. What good is your God doing for you that I can't do for myself? The world lies in hiding. We find that Psalm 7, Psalm 10. They lie in hiding to call out, to call us out on the smallest misstep or to accuse us of false motives and whatever good they see us do. That we did it for the wrong reasons. We did it for selfish reasons. This was the very thing that Satan said about Job. Of course he serves you. For his own selfish interest he serves you. The world accuses just like their father. And God knows how often our foolishness and sinfulness give the world an occasion to speak ill of the gospel we preach, speak ill of the Savior we love. We have made a lot of bad decisions. And we have sinned in the face of the world. The world has seen us fall, turn away, and do things that they know, as well as we know, we ought not to have done. And so we have been ashamed to the gospel. We have brought dishonor to our Savior. And so David prays that God might lead him in paths of righteousness, that his pure life might put a padlock on their impure lips and give them no occasion to speak ill either of him or of God. And why does David expect such ill treatment at the hands of his enemies? Well, look at verse 9. Look at how he describes his enemies. He says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. These are the kinds of people David is up against. The kind of people that oppose David. The kind of people trying to trap David in his words. Snare him in his walk of life. Destroy his character. Destroy his reputation. And ultimately remove him from the throne as the king appointed by God. They don't play by the rules of morality because they don't fear God. Rather, they employ, David says, deceit, treachery, lies, even flattery, and hurt any and all in their way to lead Christians into sin. This is true for us today, isn't it? The world is happy to see us fall. The world is full of lies and deceit and treachery and all harmful things. The world isn't seeking our good. The world doesn't have the best interest of God's people in mind. The world has its own interest in mind. And they will use the church, if they can, to accomplish those ends, even if it means making furrows in the backs of God's people. But David knew that if God led him, then he'd be safe. He'd be safe from the mischief and malice of his enemies. And so when he asks that God would lead him in the way that he should go, that he would make his straight path before him, this is the reason why. It is so that he might clearly see it that way and might be able to walk directly in it, not turning to the left or to the right, and thereby silence his enemies. Remember, Paul says the same, that the world would have nothing to say against you as he charged Timothy to walk holily before the world. The world may have no occasion to say anything against you, to live above reproach in the eyes of the world. Now, some might be thinking this morning, can't David figure all this out on his own? It's not like David is a child anymore. Can't he decide for himself how to carry himself in the world? Isn't he old enough? Isn't he mature enough? Isn't he experienced enough that he can be trusted to do the right thing? Doesn't David have enough now as a believer? 
one who's walked with God for thus long? Doesn't David have enough in himself? Hasn't he learned enough to walk on his own and to make his own decisions? Well, all we can say to that is clearly David thought differently. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking God to lead him, and he wouldn't be afraid of misstepping. So there must be something more going on in David's mind. There must be a certain rationale that gives shape to this prayer. And of course there is. It's because of what David knows about God and what David knows about himself that he prays for guidance. And if we're going to pray like David, if we're going to get the answers that David got, we need to acknowledge the same things. We need to have the same rationale. First of all, David knew and believed several things about God. He knew that God was the all-wise and infinite God who inhabits eternity, which means none was so well-suited to guide David as God. God is the best guide. He knew further that the Lord was faithful. He knew that God would guide him. David, of course, at some point eventually writes Psalm 23. The Lord will lead me. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, even in the presence of my enemies, God will lead me. His rod, his staff, that's my comfort. The Lord is as a shepherd at my side. He knew God was faithful and God would lead him. He wouldn't let David be abandoned and desolate with no way to go. He knew the Lord loved him and therefore would never steer him wrong. He knew that God would never leave him or forsake him. He knew that God was committed to caring for him as a shepherd cares for his sheep as a father would care for his children, because he knew that God was his God. As he says in the 56th Psalm, this I know, that God is for me. And so when David needed guidance, it was to God that he prayed. To whom else would he go, and why? He had God to guide him. But David also knew something, and he believed something about himself which compelled him to pray for guidance. David knew that in himself he was neither able to see nor to hold on a right and godly course without God as his guide. He knew that if he were left to himself, he would choose a foolish and sinful course. He knew that left to himself, he would bring harm to himself and he would bring dishonor to God. And he knew this because he knew three things about himself that stood against him. He knew his own ignorance. In Jeremiah 10 verse 23 We read, the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. David knew that wisdom, the wisdom he needed to walk uprightly in a fallen world, that wisdom was not in him. It was not in his own heart and mind. It didn't reside in him. He knew that he needed the direction of the all-wise God or he would be deceived by his own heart or the world in which he lived. Furthermore, he knew his own foolishness. He knew that if he was left to himself, he would behave rashly. He would walk foolishly. He would not think before he spoke. He would not look before he leaped. And he would end up giving the world many occasions to slander him and speak ill of God. And furthermore, David knew his own sinfulness. David knew the plague of his own heart. Just read Psalm 51, Psalm 32, Psalm 6. David knew that his heart was not to be trusted. He knew how prone he was to stumbling, to compromising, and to being led astray by a sweet voice. You see, the world tells us to follow our heart. If it feels good, do it. 
Trust yourself. Take charge. Be a leader. Do it your way. But God tells us and God shows us that our hearts are sinful, deceitful, and cannot be trusted. The heart is deceitful, says the Lord in Jeremiah, above all else. There are many deceitful things in life, but nothing is more deceitful than your own heart. David knew that the last person's advice he should be following was his own. He knew that no one would get him into so much trouble as himself. And so he prayed that God would lead him in straight paths. And so the point here is this. We can't truly pray to God or follow God or trust in God's leading hand unless we are convinced of these same truths about God and about ourselves. We will never humble ourselves to be led by God unless we are convinced of who we are and who He is. When we are convinced of our emptiness and His fullness, of our need and His supply, of our innate foolishness and waywardness and His innate wisdom and goodness, only then will we be able to pray as David prays and walk as David walks. Have we not learned this about ourselves? Have we not found by now that we cannot be trusted? That we are our own worst enemy? That we are the one who brings trouble into our troubles? Our troubles are never what we make them out to be. Others have carried worse troubles, heavier crosses, more crosses. Why are our troubles so bad and so painful and so miserable and so impossible to get beyond? But because of our own heart in it. It's what we bring to it. Many have carried so much more than we complain about. Obviously, the problem is not the, the cross itself. It's our hearts. Selfishness, pride, foolishness, self-love, self-will, self-conceit, all those things that get in the way of humbling ourselves and realizing that we need God to guide. We need the Lord to do a work that we are not the best guide. Let me help you this morning apply this prayer of David to your own lives because we all stand in need of this guidance and I pray that you have found yourself to be in need as David did because if you haven't yet, you one day most surely will. It's obvious that we all need to pray for guidance. We have learned, I hope, that we can't trust our own wisdom. We have learned, I hope, to beware of being deceived by our own hearts. We have learned, I hope, to look outside of ourselves to the will of God if we want to live a safe, precise, honorable life in this fallen, evil, godless world. We are no more self-sufficient than we are self-existent. We're entirely dependent upon God to show us the right way to give us a love for the right way and to enable us to walk in the right way. And the sooner we acknowledge and humble ourselves in light of our need for the Lordship of Christ over our decisions and over our daily walk, then the sooner we'll turn to and embrace and enjoy the fullness of Christ's headship over us and the peace of Christ's ways under our feet.
You see, nothing but good comes from submitting to God. Nothing but joy and peace comes from trusting God and walking in His ways. That's the wonder of God's grace. But what does it look like to be guided by God? I want to give you some down-to-earth counsel about being led by God in righteous paths. First of all, let me lay a foundation of encouragement. I don't want you to take my words for it. Listen to the Word of God and let His promises assure you that He will guide you along life's way. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Isaiah 48, verse 17. The Lord... Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Isaiah 49 verse 10, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Psalm 73, 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. And then Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 58, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He will make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Beloved, these are the promises of God directed to you. And they are as certain and as trustworthy as God himself who cannot lie and who ever lives to perform them in your life. Because by these promises, he engages and he obliges himself to all you who believe in him that he will, without fail, guide your every step more closely, more carefully, more lovingly, more wisely, more tenderly than a mother would guide the steps of her poor, blind, helpless child. So don't neglect these promises. Memorize them. Write them down and draw out from them that inexhaustible and strengthening encouragement. Because what they say to you, what they say, they say to you. And it is God himself who stands behind them to fulfill them. In fact, his heart is behind them. And what does he say in the scriptures? You do not have because you do not ask. The failure is ours not to ask. The failure is not God's. He has promised. And he stands ready to lead his church in righteous paths. But we do not ask. And one of the reasons we don't ask is because we don't believe he will answer. Well, these promises take care of that, don't they? He will answer. Secondly, let me give you an illustration of how God guides us. I hinted at this earlier, but I want to come back to it. Think again of how God guided Israel in the wilderness. He guided them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. He showed them, as you know the stories, he showed them when to camp. He showed them where to camp. When and where to travel, when and where to stop. He showed them how long to stay in one place and when to leave that place to go to another. Beloved, they were led one step at a time. They were taught to live a life of faith, patiently waiting and following as he led. Even Abraham, when he left his father's house to follow God, the Bible says particularly, he knew not where he was going. The Lord says, I'm going to lead you. You follow me. And he got up and followed. And that's how God leads his people today. Just as they were led one step at a time, so we are led in the same way. In other words, God calls us to live a life of today's and not tomorrow's. Even Matthew chapter 6, our Savior tells us, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Let tomorrow's worries wait until tomorrow. 
Don't drag those worries into today. There's enough to concern you today. And there is grace for today. There is manna for today. And the cloud will lead you today. Because God leads us no differently. He leads us daily. He leads us step by step. God doesn't give us all the answers we need all at once. He gives us just what we need for today. Not because God God doesn't know the rest. God knows the rest. But because we need to live by faith. We need to learn to live dependent on Him. And He leads us where we need to go. He moves us no sooner than He knows is best for us. He brings us to places which will do us the most good and bring Him the most glory. He gives us no more explanation for the crosses He puts upon us than this. You need them. And He gives us no more explanation for our losses than this. They were hindering your love for me. And He gives us no more preview of what's next than this. I will take care of it. Trust me. Congregation, this is the happiest and safest life a man can live. To be happy in the care of God's infinite goodness and love. To be safe under the guidance and the protection of God's infinite wisdom and power. That's living the dream. That's heaven on earth. That's why Psalm 144, 144.15 declares, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. They are in the care of the God who guides His people from beginning to end. Thirdly, therefore, let me warn you to beware of impatience in the Lord's ways and timing. Psalm 27, the last verse gives it to us this way. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Twice we're told, be patient. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord. When we grow weary of waiting, we are tempted to doubt that God will provide or that God will carry us safely through our trouble. And when we let that ruminate for a while, we're tempted to pick up and move ahead of God trying to manipulate the circumstances to bring about the outcome we want. So instead of waiting and letting God answer in the way and at the time that He knows to be best for us, we just get up and go on our own. Isn't this where the golden calf came from? We don't know what happened to this Moses. He's been gone so long. Get up, Aaron, and make gods for us. And so we need to counter the temptation to impatience with a constant affirmation to our soul that our God is faithful. He is all-wise. He is almighty. He loves us. He will do good for us. He knows what is best for us. He has promised. Let us wait upon the Lord, as the psalmist tells us. Furthermore, let me remind you this morning how God guides His people. God uses four things to lead us in righteousness. First of all, He uses His law, the Ten Commandments. We've been studying those, as you know, in Sunday school. The Ten Commandments are not the means of salvation, because salvation is by faith alone. But the Ten Commandments are given to us as Christians as a rule for our obedience, which means we should seek to walk in them in order to enjoy the promises and the blessings of walking in the ways of God. Psalm 5, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 5, 23, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you. Blessing comes to us. Blessing comes to the obedient, not for their obedience as cause and effect, but upon their obedience as first and second. So God guides us by His law. Secondly, He guides us by His truth. At the end of the day, the testimony of Scripture, as we even confessed in our catechism, is the only sure and infallible rule of what we are to believe and how we are to live. 
God may use various means to nudge us, but Holy Scripture trumps everything. It's our ultimate guide. God gave His Spirit and promised that He will bring us into all truth, that He will help us understand the Bible. He will lead us in paths of righteousness. And when we follow the Holy Spirit's leading in the light of Scripture, we will find the mind of Christ. So our greatest need here is to grow in the knowledge of our Bible. We need to be reading it. We need to be reading solid Christian literature that reinforces the Bible, that explains it and applies it. And we need to be sitting under the preaching of the ministry of the Bible because the better we know our Bibles, the better we will be bringing every area of our lives under the lordship of Christ so that we live lives shaped by Scripture. We will be people of the book. Thirdly, of course, as even as I prayed this morning, God guides us by biblical, biblical example. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And it says further in Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And Paul told young Titus to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. And we all remember Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. What an encouragement. The church is directed all throughout Scripture to find spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who will take us under their wings and teach us the things of God from the wisdom and the experience of their walk with God and their many battles with temptation. We need to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ whose maturity and whose piety is constant, consistent, magnetic, edifying, exemplary, convicting. Who is that person in your life? Who is your mentor? Whose faith are you seeking to imitate? Who have you set before you that by the grace of God you may follow Christ as well as he or she does? You see, this is important because too often we surround ourselves and it's our inclination to surround ourselves with people whose immaturity makes our immaturity look mature. We surround ourselves with people whose compromising lives make our compromise look like loyalty. Or people whose lackadaisical lives don't cause us any conviction about our sluggish Christian walk. My friends, we will never grow like that. We will never grow to be like Christ like that. In fact, all that proves is that we don't want to grow. We like the status quo. Unlike Paul, who knew and said, even toward the end of his life, I have not yet arrived. He pressed on for the prize of the high calling. None of us has arrived. We all need good counselors. Our happiness and joy will be found in seeking out and attaching to ourselves men and women whose lives are going to challenge us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us, grow us, and bring us along to heights of biblical thinking and Christian piety that we would never reach on our own. And this may mean we need to sacrifice the easy friendships that hold us back for those eternal friendships that will make us more like Christ, set us on fire for God, and make us jealous over our own souls, helping us heavenward and setting before us an example of walking in the will of God. God has provided biblical examples and examples all around us if we will look for them. And finally then, God guides us by biblical counsel. In Proverbs eleven fourteen. 
we read, in the abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So we need to seek out the counsel, not only of godly men and women with whom you've surrounded yourself, but seek out the counsel of your elders, your pastor. Seek out biblical counselors that you know will tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear, who will tell you the truth in love. And no, they won't always be right, but they're provided to you by God to help you bring the word of God to bear on your decisions. And that is as needful as it is rare. Finally, this morning, this is so important a topic, especially for our young people, that I want to close by giving you just a few quick principles that I hope you'll post somewhere and memorize. Principles of godly conduct to help you discern the will of God in your life. And these are in your outline. Just a few quick things. First of all, no action which is contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture can ever be right. No action which is contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture can ever be right. And so we need to ask of a given choice, is it lawful? Sin is never an option. We must never sin upon the presumption that we can ask forgiveness later. And no matter how hard the truth may be, no matter how difficult the right course may be, we must never sin in order to avoid suffering. Because the worst suffering is better than the least sin. And if you're not sure if it's lawful, then ask a follow-up question. Will doing it require an excuse or a disguise? Because we must never do anything that requires an excuse or a disguise. Secondly, there may be nothing wrong with a given choice. But there also may be nothing right about it either. So we should further ask, what are the consequences of this choice? Will it lead me further to Christ or farther away from Christ? Will it make me more like Christ or less like Christ? Will it make me more holy? Or will it negatively impact my holiness? Thirdly, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, we must always be in control of ourselves and exercise self-discipline. And so we should ask, is it enslaving? Will I lose control of myself in the course of it and come under bondage such that I become unwilling to live without it? Then you shouldn't do it. Paul says, even among those things that are lawful, we are not to become slaves of anything. Fourthly, whatever we do, we need to do it in union. We do do it, excuse me, whatever we do, we do in union with Christ. And so we should ask ourselves, is it consistent with Christ's lordship over me, over my mind, over my heart, over my body? Can I do it and look Christ in the face without shame? Can I do it knowing that Christ is going to be doing it with me? You don't check Christ at the door, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. We don't check Christ at the door when we enter into, an, enter into a course of sin. You drag Christ with you into the mud, as Paul says, to the harlot's house. Christ goes with you. 
for he has taken you to himself. He has married you, united you to himself. Wherever you go, he goes with you. To places of ill repute, to actions of sin and grievous evil, you can't leave Christ behind. Can you do it then and look at Christ in the face? Can you do it knowing that Christ does it with you? Furthermore, as Christians, we are members of a body of believers. And everything we do affects all of God's people. So we should further ask, would it lead others astray? Would it cause my brethren to stumble? Would it bring honor or dishonor to my church family? Because we are members one of another. We rejoice together and we grieve together. And the final question of evaluation is, will it bring glory to God? Because the non-negotiable norm of Christian living is that all things are to be done with an eye to the glory of God. That's why God, Paul gets right down even to the most simplistic of things. Whether we eat or whether we drink, even that is to be done to the glory of God. If that is to be done to the glory of God, then surely all other things are to be done to the glory of God. And so we must ask this question as an overarching question. Do we have biblical warrant to believe that it will bring glory to God? Now these questions won't solve every conundrum, but they will serve you well as biblical principles for evaluating your decisions, your actions, your speech, and your overall lifestyle. And they'll help you move forward with confidence and a clear conscience, of which there is nothing better. Because they're intended, these principles are intended, and this is what makes them so helpful. They are simply intended not to be a legalistic rule for you. The intent of all six principles is very simply this, to bring your life in subjection to the word of God and to fix your desire on the glory of God, which is the very thing God calls you to do. So these principles are a help toward that. And if you find them not helpful toward that, then get rid of them. But if you find that they are helpful to that twofold end, that all of your life will be brought under sub in subjection to the word of God, and that your desires would be purely on the glory of God, then use these principles in the way that they are intended. So let us pray together this morning with David that God will faithfully lead us in the way that we should go. We live in a fallen world, and we're trying to live righteous lives, but we also live in a very crafty and deceptive world, a world that seeks to allure God's people. We are constantly bombarded with the barrage of temptations and seductions and lies and deceit, anything and everything to keep us from the Lord. As Thomas Brooks once said, if the devil can't keep you out of heaven, he'll do everything to keep heaven out of you. To rob you of the comfort and the peace and the joy of what it means to be a child of God. And what we've seen this morning, what David prays for and what we pray for is that we might know the comfort, the peace and the joy of walking in God's ways. They are right, and we shouldn't be anywhere else. But when we're in them, they alone bring the comfort, the peace, the joy, the happiness that our hearts long for and that God promises to his people. And we want to enjoy those things on his promise. So let us pray that Dave, with David that God would do that for us and use these biblical means by which God's guidance may be made clear in our lives unless we miss it and suffer for it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are so grateful from your word to be reminded that you are a God who guides your people. You have not left us, O Lord, to the folly of our own imaginations, and nor have you turned us over to the world for wisdom. 
But Father, you have been so good as to give us your word. You have given us a rule by which we are to walk, a rule for both our faith and our practice, both at the beginning of the Christian life, the entire Christian life, and unto even our very death. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your all-sufficiency. We pray this morning that our hearts may be set attuned to the word. Pray for our young people in particular, Lord, as they continue to seek your way, as they seek to be guided in the way of truth. And some of them, Lord, at the precipice of making big decisions and plans and careers. Oh God, we ask that they may ever eye your glory, desiring that they may live in accordance with your word. For then it shall go well with them all their days. You shall be with them and bless them. Grant to us now, Father, your blessing as a church. And may we all be guided in your way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.